When traveling in space, who or what comes along for the ride? Our history shapes our future, and we carry two things with us wherever we go. A biological memory, written in our genes by evolution and environment, and a social memory, carried in the stories we tell about life, the universe, and everything. Science and science fiction can help us process this history, perhaps even transcend it as we travel to the stars. Welcome to Space on the Page. My name is Lucas Mix, and I am an astrobiologist, a scientist working to understand the origin, extent, and future of life in the universe. I'm currently working at the Library of Congress, studying the interaction between science and science fiction in astrobiology. This podcast brings together scientists and authors to talk about astrobiology and the role of the imagination as we take our first steps into space. In this episode, we join astrobiologist Batul Kachar and author Nettie Akorafor. Dr. Akorafor's award-winning Binti series follows a young Himbu woman on her own journey into space. Binti runs away from home to attend university on another planet and becomes involved in an interstellar conflict. In the process, she learns about her future, but also about her past. Hi, yes, I'm Nettie Okorafor, and I am a writer of African Futurism and African Judaism. The easy way to say that is science fiction and fantasy. I should point out uh, that Dr. Okorafor is the winner of multiple awards, including (laughs) the Hugo Nebula and World Fantasy Awards. Um, She has deeply engaging stories uh, in all sorts of venues. She also holds a PhD in literature. And her novel, I believe, Noor, is coming out in November? Yes. Now, you describe your work as African futurism and define it as a subcategory of science fiction. Reading from your website, African futurism is specifically and more directly rooted in African culture, history, mythology, and point of view as it then branches into the Black diaspora. And it does not privilege or center the West. African futurism is concerned with visions of the future, is interested in technology, leaves the earth, skews optimistic, is centered on and predominantly written by people of African descent, and it is rooted first and foremost in Africa. It's less concerned with what could have been and more concerned with what is and can or will be. It acknowledges, grapples with, and carries what has been. Well, hi, Bichul Qatar here. I'm an uh, assistant professor at the University of Wisconsin at Madison in the Department of Bacteriology. Um, I am also an astrobiologist. I use synthetic biology, evolution, and microbiology to travel back in time and reconstruct ancient molecules. And, And I'm really fascinated by the fact that uh, steps life took billions of years ago sets the tone for pretty much everything we get to do right now. <laughs> I think that is fascinating, and I, I just want to understand that. So that that's I think that's why you brought me here. I'm really um, honored also to be talking to Nelly today. Thank you. I know you're a, a huge fan of science fiction. Can you say something about uh, 
if and, and how science fiction might have influenced the way you do science? Well, it's, I, it's very um, obvious, I think, for, well, especially for us here, that science and science fiction and engineering, um, they intertwine in our society in many surprising and very unique ways. There is no doubt that science fiction stories and like Jules Verne, you know, from from 19th, 19th century inspired scientific research, maybe at that time underfunded or sometimes amateur into research into, um, uh, you know, astronautics, aeronautics, um, which then that, you know, paved the way for the advent of human air or even space flight, right, for many decades later. So as a scientist who is interested in finding life elsewhere in the universe, of course, I am undoubtedly a science fiction nerd. You know, this is almost an um, unspoken rule. <laughs> and um, and I, I re distinctly remember a meeting about a decade ago uh, in Texas in, in a NASA facility uh, where we were shown a video of space exploration and the, the past and where NASA wants to go to. And I couldn't help but notice the room you know, middle-aged people mostly, yeah. um, but all with this childlike excitement, almost holding hands and you know holding onto their seats and just getting so you know excited and teary-eyed and just. I, and I remember looking in the room and thinking, "This is the group that I wish I knew when I was in elementary school <laughs> <laughs> or in high school." And I felt so out of place. Uh, here are here are my people. I just remember thinking that. And, um, and, I, and I think one way or another, maybe it's a book, maybe it's a movie, maybe it's a short essay. We all read something that feeds off of fantasy or fiction that brought our way into to this point. Um, I really like Star Trek. I think um, it really helped me see myself in science in many ways. I, I felt that it was compared to what is available um, uh, compared to the other options portrayed diversity and inclusiveness a little bit more um, in terms of what is possible and where I could see myself. Uh, and I think it also gave me a, uh, some sense or even a guidebook in the you know, version, in, in, the, in the form of a visual feast of what a management or directorship would look like. Uh, I am direct, I'm directing a NASA center now and I, and I still rely on the tips of Picard. <laughs> I must yeah. say. So, so yeah, so in many ways, I think um, these sort of writings uh, definitely feed us and, and I'm one of uh, those scientists. You got a chance to read Binti, I believe. Did you have any uh, questions or, or comments for uh, Nettie? I was particularly interested in hearing Nidhi's thoughts about her way of um, portraying aliens and, and what, what she thinks about when she thinks about aliens. So I'm, I'm an immigrant, so I'm a legal alien, technically. <laughs> so although I'm you know, humanoid. So, uh, but in, in the way Nidhi was describing her characters, it, it, it was a little different than what I am uh, familiar with, you know, when it comes to thinking or reading about different life forms. So I guess I'm curious about her source of inspiration and what she thinks about when it comes to aliens in general. Um, yeah, I'm curious about what goes in her head when she thinks about 
Yeah. Um, yeah. It's a lot goes through my head, <laughs> but I think that, okay, so I'm the, I'm the child of, of immigrants. You know, both of my parents came to the United States in I think it was 1969 and they came for school and it ended up staying because of the, the African civil war broke out and they couldn't go back. So that was what made them stay. So they, they had planned to come here and leave the come and go. So, um, and, and the, they've always maintained a very close connection to family in Nigeria. Most of our family is there. And so they've been taking us back, you know, as soon as the, as soon as the war, as soon as it was safe, they started bringing us back to kind of reconnect and, and understand and know. So like, that's the background that I come into this with. So, you know, this idea of aligning the idea of extraterrestrials, like literal extraterrestrials with the metaphor of other human beings, like immigrants in particular, or those people that we don't know, that alignment for me, I don't do that. Like when I'm, when I'm thinking about what would extraterrestrials be like, even calling them aliens is a very human point of view, you know, like we, we still, even when we have science fiction narratives and we have like the human beings going to another planet and meeting others there, we still call them aliens. We are the aliens in that situation. The the immigrant narrative is very much a part of Binti. And I, I remember when I wrote it, I was not thinking about it at all. But I mean, I'm the child of immigrants. And I've grown up hearing the narratives of immigrants like all my life. So that's, you know, that's inevitably going to make it in there. So like this idea of this girl leaving, you know, leaving for this university on another planet. And she has to, she comes from a very insular family and she she knows she loves her fan. That's, that was one of the things that was really important because a lot of narratives where, where someone is leaving their home to go somewhere else, their home always is demonized in some way or made to look like this is a, a bad place that they're fleeing from for whatever reason. And I was determined not to have that be the case. So Binti loves her family. She loves her home. She has a place in her home. She has a place um, culturally, she has a, a, a pretty high position because of a, a talent that she was born with. So she's got this high position in her family, but she wants this thing. She wants, you know, she finds out about this university and they're teaching about something that she can't get at home and she wants it and she, she leaves. And when she leaves, she brings her whole culture with her. It's not that she leaves, she leaves everything behind. And then when she leaves, she just, you know, becomes something else she brings her culture with her and then and in that journey in the journey changes her of course and it affects her but she becomes more as opposed to becoming something else so i think that that part was definitely affected by this idea of the the immigrant narrative but also the academia part i mean i'm a product of I, you know i have two masters and a PhD and I spent a lot of time in the university and I, and the reason why is because I love it. I love learning. I love the idea of being in a, in a world of learning and a world of research, a world of obsessing about just every single thing on earth, like obsessing and people who are becoming experts on every single one of those things. And so like, it is a different planet to me you know, in that regard. So we've got Binti who's going into that. And she's like, find, it's like what you were talking about, finding your tribe, you know, your people. I and mean, it's just very specific, the specific way of thinking that once you find those people, it's just like, you've just, you can, you can come from 
a home, but it's like that tribe is just like nothing else. So Binti very much experiences that. And, and I think that's a story also about academia. So like those themes are kind of all very much alive in the narrative, along with the, the very science fictional theme of, you know, dealing with extraterrestrials and aliens and leaving the planet. And what does that mean? And what does that feel like? And, and all of that. Yeah. I mean, from a more cultural point of view, it's almost um, expected or maybe imposed by some cultures that when mm-hmm. you immigrate to another place, you need to adapt to that culture. Yeah. But that maybe ignores the, it maybe gives a very simplified version of what really happens at the individual level is that you giving up what you um, are familiar with or your upbringing can also reduce your experiences mm-hmm. as, a, as, a, as the immigrant, is that a word, as someone who immigrates? Yeah. Uh, so it's, uh, that, that's very beautiful. I, I actually really appreciate that you brought that to daylight a bit more because, yeah, moving from place A to B doesn't mean you have to give up everything. But yeah. However painful that might be, it also makes you richer. Yeah. I mean, it's like the, the, just that idea of you come to uh, another place and then you have to conform. And to conform means leaving behind what you brought. It, it, it doesn't mean, uh, you know, assimilation. When I, when I think of the idea of assimilation, especially when you come, if we're talking about the United States, coming here, you're supposed to leave all of that other stuff behind and be like everybody here, which I think is a kind of toxic way of, of thinking. And I think everybody loses with that. You know, I, I, I'm always, I'm, I'm just a big believer in the idea that more is better than either or, you know, like, why can't we have all of it? Like my mom was very much about keeping her accent. She's like, I don't want to, I don't want to lose this accent. So she made sure she kept it, you know, it may have been tapered a little, but she made sure she kept the accent because it was important to her. It was a value to her. And I, you know, I've always respected that. I agree that with, if I may say so with my Turkish accent, mm-hmm. but I also uh, see some of the, these um, sort of the important lessons and useful tricks from the past in biology as well. Right. Mm-hmm we tend to think about past as a somehow different or less complex or simpler time. This is true. Uh, I think it comes to thinking about our planet's past or thinking about molecules and how early life has been on, on this planet. We tend to imagine that things get more complex over time mm-hmm. for biology, but we see this over and over again that that may not necessarily be true that everything is sophisticated and complicated in their own time just because we you know are removed from that point of time and look back and maybe from where we analyze them things seem to look simpler doesn't mean that they were these solutions were valid at that time um so it is for me when you talk about past and experiences and moving from one place to the other uh, it's kind of fun to think about this at the billion year time scale and and to think that you know our uh, molecules and by our i mean all living organisms on this planet uh, is a, a a relic of whatever has happened mm. in the past anyway what would your response be to the idea of the past present and the future kind of being 
not being as separate as people want to think they are. I, I'm not sure if we can impose what we learned from the past on to predicting the future. I wish, right? That would make mm-hmm. many things easy. We could predict, sure we could predict <laughs> you know, how a virus will evolve uh, by just looking at a pattern. But speaking of patterns, right, we can, we can to some degree constrain our expectations for moving forward, right? So past, I think, in revealing it will definitely allow us to navigate our way today better. And it's really mind-blowing to me how little we know about Mm -hmm. our uh, history of life. Uh, And most of the reason is, no, unfortunately, they are mostly erased from history, that these are very untractable uh, steps we are talking about. We're talking really way back into the past. So here we are um, sort of trying to construct something or put pieces together in order to access this era of time that is erased mostly. Good luck to us. It's not easy. Um, that being said, I really think it's the key in order to understand a lot of the molecular underpinnings of biology today. So I'm glad that there are a lot of uh, interest in this direction increasing. Mm-hmm. So especially I think when we study and come across with different planets, um, different moon systems, when we realize at least at the uh, geological realm, they remind us of our own planet that once was, we realize that if we were to really understand likelihood of life elsewhere in the universe or what sort of life form may likely to rise in any given environment, we need to first understand how life originate on our own planet. And that, that is a task beyond tracking the environment of our planet's past, but also the biology that may rise in these conditions. Yeah. Um, so I think planet and space exploration more and more is uh, bringing us back to our own roots as a planet uh, and as a living system um, Mm -hmm. of this planet whole. And there is nothing more humbling than this, when when you realize that the entire planet is um, just this unique blue ball (laughs) floating and, um, you know, it's all the mess, the beauty with everything we've got in here. Uh, it's extremely unique and interesting. Yeah. I feel like we spend a lot of time in, in astrobiology thinking about life not as we know it. And there's this, this fascinating blend of imagination grounded in reality, the, the balance between what we know and, and what might be. And I really respect both of you for your, your insights into this question of, of how we mix imagination with reality, how we take something that is uh, like personal experience and turn it into a, a fictional narrative, which nonetheless reveals that personal experience or how we take the known biology of today and extrapolate to the possible biology on other planets or historical. So I'd be interested in hearing from both of you how do you think about this balance between what is and what might be? I think it's, um, it's fun, <laughs> you know, just, just thinking about it because 
like just the idea of, of what is and what might be it's like in one breath i think for like for me as a science fiction writer in one breath there's I, I, when i when i think about that idea there's a bridge like on one one aspect of it there's a bridge between like the what is and what might be there's a connection but then there's also another one where there's no bridge where i'm just like the, the idea of what might be or what could be out there is completely like separate and not connected to anything that I understand as what is. There are two co- completely different ways of, of viewing it for me. And I think both are really, really interesting. How about you, Batul? It's definitely one of the best times to think about life as we don't know from an experimental point of view. Uh, I'm with Feynman, I guess, that what I cannot create, I do not understand. Hmm. I am a synthetic biologist and I like to think about um, synthetic systems. I like to think about artificial systems. Uh, However much they get inspired by native, already existing natural systems, right? We build on what is around us and then we tweak it. We call it artificial. So, uh, um, right, right. and then um, this ability, I think, to experimentally create a variety of different things right now opens the door for creating things that, again, could be existing in the past or non-existent, but a potential branch of life as we know it, however different it might be. Years ago, I attended a workshop, it was called Agnostic Life and Life Detection in DC. And it was a really remarkable uh, workshop that opened my eyes into thinking about the need to be a little agnostic when it comes to looking for life elsewhere in the universe. I never, I guess, thought about it using that term. And Nedi being here, thanks to social scientists for finding these best words, right? That suddenly <laughs> clicks everything and brings everything together and you don't need to think about it anymore. It's really remarkable. <laughs> well, I guess that term made me think about, oh yeah, we, we got to be a little agnostic about when it comes to expectations when we look mm-hmm. for life. But how do you find something that you don't know what it looks like or behaves like? So that's the problem, right? It needs to be somewhat familiar to what we have here um, so that we can detect it. Therefore, Definitely is a reasonable place to start with life as we know it. Um, but I think as we get to understand different planets and different environments, and also, if I may say so myself, the alien environments on our own planet and life that mm-hmm. adapts to these conditions more, uh, we will broaden our perspective. I think a big misconception is, especially when it comes to uh, life detection or search for life elsewhere, is the idea that uh, whether we are not putting in enough time or attention into understanding what we have here first. Um, I don't think these are mutually exclusive. Uh, you know, we do, do a lot of, we spend a lot of time, we do a lot of work to understand the understanding life around us. And I really think that that's the key anyway, that without truly grasping the diversity and what life can actually do on this planet at first place, we will probably not be able to understand or find life elsewhere, regardless of how it looks like. 
Well, on that note of knowledge of, of here and a door open to finding something truly strange and different and revealing elsewhere, our time is wrapping up. I am so grateful to both of you. I have had a wonderful time. And thank you so much for coming and joining us. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having us. This is great. This is a great conversation. This is Space on the Page, a podcast from the Kluge Center at the Library of Congress. Our original music was composed and performed by Andrew Briner. It has been my great joy and privilege to join you and our guests in this exploration of astrobiology and the imagination. I want to say a special word of thanks to Barry Bloomberg, the first director of the NASA Astrobiology Institute, who supported me in my own career and helped instill in me a deep love for this endeavor, the search for life in space. Thank you to David Barron and all the previous Bloomberg chairs. I'll be handing off the podcast to future chairs, and I look forward to hearing their own take. Thank you to the marvelous staff here at the library, and thank you for listening. I'm Lucas Mix, signing off.